the big one for me with understanding what mental health first aid is about, it's, it's almost very similar to physical first aid. Remember, that's what you were saying. And it was just being that bridge before you pass them on to professional services. That's how I look at it. And even someone that's done first aid, I know exactly what that's like as well. So I haven't done it in the flesh, like I've done with mental first aid, but doing the training, it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Julie podcast. I'm your host, Julie Gillespie. This show is a safe space where we can come together and understand that conversations are what connects us. They let us know where we belong, that we do belong, that they connect us all collectively and to ourselves. So welcome to the podcast and let's start a conversation that's going to make a difference. In today's episode, we're talking about mental health first aid and the benefits that the training has for understanding the practice of having a conversation with someone who's having a tough time. And in today's podcast, we talked to Toph Evans, who is also the producer of this show. He also does all of the background work to make everything look pretty for us. And he's a content creator, marketer, and a mental health advocate. And as you'll see, there's a lot of aspects of who he is that he brings into his conversations. And I wanted to be able to share this conversation that we've had before with you all because Toph did the, his mental health first aid training with me just before COVID started. And overnight, you know, after the first night, you know, the, there was this exhaustion. The second night, you know, after the training, there was this kind of enlightenment. The next day he had a conversation with his um, flatmate that needed to be had because he was deeply concerned. And the mental health first aid training gave him the ability to be able to step in, hold space and be comfortable enough to be able to say, hey, like I'm really concerned. So in this podcast, so we don't normally go into details um, in the podcast, but I do just want to put, put a notice out there. We do um, talk about um, suicidal thoughts. We do talk about suicidal conversations, not in the sense that there's going to be any detail. So I just want to put that out there. Also, Toph does take us into some of the things that he experienced with his mental illness over the years and, and the experiences that he had and, and what led him through to be able to sit and know that he wants to care for people better and create an experience for people where they're able to feel cared for. Toph is such a genuinely nice human, like no, a kind human because there's a generosity of spirit there and a hunger for learning and hunger for growing. And uh, I think he's a perfect person to sit and have a conversation with about how mental health first aid, um, the structure and the framework of it can change how you turn up in conversations from that moment forward. So welcome on in. I look forward to hearing your feedback on this podcast. And if you are interested in um, finding out more about mental health first aid and the training, we do both online training and face-to-face -face in Brisbane. We can also come to you. So sit back, enjoy, and let's start a conversation that's going to make a difference. So welcome on in and thank you for joining me, Toph Evans. Thank you, Julie. I really wanted to have you come in and have a conversation with me about mental health 
and mental health first aid and where this has all gone for you. Uh, because you came in and first met me in training, doing your mental health first aid accreditation two years ago. Yeah, I want to say 2020. 20, like early 2020. Yeah. Before the world shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you got life skills before that stuff hit us. <laughs> that was a good move. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good planning. Yeah, so you're going to be coming up soon for a refresher. So we'll have to look at getting you, uh, you guys booked in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so you did the mental health first aid training, and so it's a couple of years under your belt. But you've also been doing a lot of things prior to that in terms of being a mental health advocate, because you do have your own story. Um, But you're a podcast producer, it's my podcast producer, and content creator, marketer, and, you know, there's a lot of things that you've done in building, I guess, the experience for people in how they interact with things. So you've had roles in helping people get jobs, you know, and the experience that they have through that process. You know, talent acquisition, we, we think of it as a transactional type of process. But it's a pure experience, isn't it? It is. And that was actually part of my role. I, I did it for a few reasons why I wanted to do the mental health first aid. A, to educate myself mm. on having conversations that people might feel conflicting, right? But also dealing with candidates. I implemented candidate care at the place I was working for. And a lot of that was to remove that transactional piece. A lot in recruitment, it's tick and flick or one and done. That's a saying that's actually used, unfortunately. So for me to come in as a well-being piece was great. Like there's obviously other elements, like if I build a rapport long enough, I can essentially understand intel from them that I can pass on to the account managers. But one thing I noticed was when I was able to have these conversations and sit back and listen, they would actually open up and share. Even though I wasn't in person with them, it was crazy. Like, we're able to mitigate a few things. Like, there was people that were wanting to leave and able to find that information out early enough because they didn't have the courage to speak with their boss. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is actually something that is needed in a lot of recruitment agencies. Yeah. Because if we're dealing with people, especially... Um, maybe more junior staff where this is uncharted territory for them. Someone that's maybe more of a seasoned contract is a little bit different, right? Oh, they, man, but yeah. that, that stress load, mm. you know, in and of itself is just mind-blowing. But, yeah, for, for any of the levels, but, yeah, for a junior coming through who hasn't done this before in getting a job, looking for a job, keeping a job. Yeah. So one thing I noticed by even doing the mental health first aid certificate and understanding the elements behind it and then speaking with people personally, professionally, I could have a different perspective and actually be an ear for them. But not a not an ear that could kind of get dumped on. No. That, no. There's got to be a shield there. Yeah, yeah. I, I've learned this the hard way from someone who's quite empathic. One of the downfalls of being an empath is taking on everyone's load. And feeling on their emotional burden. And no, it becomes an emotional burden because of the choice too. And ends up being hard because it's hard to disconnect. And it ends up feeling a bit burnt out. And then it can also, from myself, my own experience, ends up becoming a bit of a people-pleasing thing of a, this self-virtuous, self-sabotaging circle that I put myself into because I want to do that to feel loved. But I'm, which doesn't end up being, there's no integrity in that because now I'm not even doing it for the right reasons. So what I'm trying to get at is, yes, there has to be a shield. Yeah. 
And that, but and so what we've just done in a really short space and time is kind of talk about like the the big overarching picture of why we got to do this stuff. So I want to kind of hone in on a few things there because I want to touch on every single one of those points <laughs> within the time frame we have. So in dealing with people and dealing with people in hard times, because getting a job's like one of the suckiest things that you ever have to do. To deal with people who are in that vulnerable position, you realize that there needed to be something more in their experience and this understanding that they're cared for. And then getting the training. And because you also have your own understanding of your own mental health and, and, and that story and journey. In that point in time in doing the training, um, I remember that you told me the story of what happened, you know, soon after, you know, having done the training and becoming a, an accredited mental health first aider. I was wondering if it would be okay to share some of the elements around that of how having the training of mental health first aid helped in that situation. Yeah. I would referencing we're talking about my flatmate at the time yeah yeah it was it was so surreal that it was actually really good timing like timing is everything and it was almost very serendipitous like I remember and I want to say this first I remember after the first day I was knackered because (laughs) it was like an information overload both my partner and I who did it at the same time and we were cooked like we just went straight to bed I'm pretty sure we had food we went straight to bed after the next day all fine. And then the day after that, what happened was I had a conversation with my roommate at the time and she was having a hard time and I could tell. And for me, I came out and I even opened up saying, I'm just here to, as a person who cares. And I had this conversation and there was a question related, and it's, it's quite a confronting question. I don't know if I'm here to say it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like, have you been thinking about bouts of suicide? Right. And not afraid to ask that question and for her to actually answer that and say, no, I haven't. And I believed her as well. Yeah. But for me to have the courage to actually say that, I don't know, it it made me feel like I was doing my part for it and I didn't need to do anything else because I know she was seeing people and all this, like to help her. And yeah, it, it, it took a massive weight off my shoulders to that I can ask these questions, right? I thought this was taboo years ago. So there's a few things there. We think stuff is serendipitous, right? That timing is right. But could it just be by having the knowledge and the awareness gave you the knowledge and awareness that the question had to be asked? Mm, right, because she could have been going for this for weeks. And she was. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a trend, yeah, right? If, there is. Mm. You know, and so the training gave you the ability to see, see it for real, and to be able to go, ah, you know what, actually, this is just a conversation. Because saying those words out loud, like if we've not got training in around us, if we've not got an idea that's the right thing to do, we're not going to get there. And so we're not going to see it. It's funny because years ago, I would have seen the term conflict Mm -hmm. as something to run away from. Yeah. But now I look at conflict as discussion. That's what it really is. It's just asking questions and sitting back and listening and realizing the other person has their point to say. And that's how I viewed that as well. Like I'm just having a discussion with this person, a conversation, let's just say. And yeah, following obviously the LG framework. Yeah, I love LG. (laughs) Yeah. So so in that, and, and this, I guess this is the question, she said no and you believed her. 
What were the ramifications of asking the question? If anything, the opposite. It was like a, a look of, I'm seen. That's what the look was. It's like, oh, right? Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's <laughs> more so like I'm acknowledged and I'm seen and I'm, and I'm yeah. heard as opposed to why would you suggest such a thing? No, it was never that look at all. And I want to be really clear on this because every time that I've been in that training room, it's like, Julie, I want to know the right thing to say to someone who's having a tough time. And what happens if I say the wrong thing? And I guess the third part in there is, what if they have a reaction? And I just want to be really clear on this is that you asked a question, you allowed it to be answered. There wasn't a ramification or reaction. It was like, I've been seen. I think what helps was creating that safe space to begin with. Opening up by saying, yes, I, I'm, I'm having this conversation with you because I care. So there was purpose. Mm. Purpose was set. Yeah. Makes a difference, huh? Yeah, as opposed to just, if I were to do that from a different angle and vilifying someone, mm. oh, they're going to put their guard up. They're not even going to answer that question. That <laughs> may lead to a reaction, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> when the reaction happens. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I think this revelation, this really clear understanding of these points is needed. You know, to come in and say, hey, I want to have a conversation with you because I really care about you. And I've been noticing that there's a lot happening. And I just wanted to see how you're going with it. And they might say, oh, yeah, look, I'm fine. It's like, okay, well, I'm starting to hear a few things and I've started recognizing a few patterns. And normally when that happens, it might be because of something. And whether it might be, you know, that someone's depressed or, you know, their anxiety is really making them avoid situations or that they're having suicidal thoughts. To be able to kind of be purposeful and say, hey, I want to have a conversation with you about this. They're going to be seen. Humans are really well behaved <laughs> when they're being seen like that in a genuine, authentic, caring way, kind way. Yeah. I it's something that I'm actually, it's very conscious for me as a dad too. Mm. It's New dad? New dad, I should say. As a new dad, yeah. one thing is I want to make sure that my little boy has these met needs and their basic needs of being seen, heard, and understood and to just hold space. That's something that I'd say even mental health first aid has helped equip me as well for that understanding as well. Yeah, it's such a great tool for it. So um, just for our listeners and our watchers, um, ALGI is a great framework that Mental Health First Aid Australia has. And the first, very first part of it is about approaching a person. Like, you know, what does that approach even look like? Is it safe? Do, can we meet and spend time in a safe space together? Um, you know, and assess. And then it's like, well, what am I actually seeing? And all of these things take us out of the equation, don't they? Except for the safety part. But the rest of it's taking us out of the situation. So we actually get to see what's happening without having to apply biases and things like that into the mix. And if it is a crisis, deal with it. So straight off the bat, like I love, I love the A, you know, it's, it just kind of goes straight in there of how we turn up. And it's with purpose. <laughs> love it. So, and being in a new, being a new dad, I mean, the skill set of algae then really kind of takes you through because the the L's for listening communicate non judgmentally. That's man, that's hard to do as a parent, <laughs> right? And I'm sure it will be more of a challenge as he gets older too, right? He's still 
essentially a baby. Yeah. So me listening to his babbling <laughs> is going to be different to him having a tantrum. But when they have those tantrums because they can't say anything and they're just crying, they're crying and crying, the first thing we want to do is like, shut up, like you're annoying. Like this is, what are you having to do this to me for? <laughs> Vulnerable moment, yes, that has gone through my mind. But when it's just like, oh, this isn't actually about me, what do they need? It's the same type of process, isn't it? Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's a really important story of what it, what it can look like. And as much as you got no as an answer, you still didn't get a reaction. You believed the person. You you followed your gut, and you actually had a good relationship as a result of it. Yeah, it was it was something special, and I felt like I felt confident to do more of that too. So that was like really soon after the training and kind of step one practice, right? Like the next day the after. Next day. <laughs> Do you know, this happens all the time. It's either overnight between day one, day two, or a few days after that it's just like, why haven't I been talking about this like all along? Like, why don't, you know, all these people around me, they're not, that, yeah. <laughs> they're not doing well. And it's like, now you're asking and you're getting the information, but how's that going? You know? Mm. So it's a practice. So you've been building on this practice. Yeah. Absolutely. The big one for me with understanding what mental health first aid is about, it's, it's almost very similar to physical first aid. Remember, that's what you were saying. And it was just being that bridge before you pass them on to professional services. That's how I look at it. And even someone that's done first aid, I know exactly what that's like as well. So I haven't done it in the flesh like I've done with mental first aid, but doing the training, it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Because it's if we're there for triage, we're first responders because Yeah, triage, yeah. Yeah, we've we've figured out something's going on, that someone's had a sprain of some sort. We're able to be able to say, well, do they need to go to the next level? Do they need just someone to let them know that they care and lean in and see them? Or like, hey, you know, the this seems pretty big and weighing you down. Why don't we connect you into someone? And oh, I'm happy to share this as well because I'm sure there'll be someone this might impact them in a positive way, even for someone that's done the training. It's actually allowed me to ask for help and feel safe about it too. So even becoming a new dad, I've called probably three or four different hotlines. I've yeah. had counseling, going to men's work, seeing therapists to guide me through this journey of this whole new world because I know that how do I get to E? <laughs> how do I get to the E of the LG, right? There's two E's. Yeah. The second E. But, the second E. Encourage other supports. I think also it's setting an example as well. So for someone that is willing to do the training and be there for someone when I need to be, because I care, it's also being the other side going, if I'm ever in having a tough time, it's also okay to set an example to, it's okay, it's okay to reach out for help and seek the help because it's also good to be that example as well. Yeah. And that's what you're setting. Like, you know, this is, what's my practice going to be of being a man in this child's life and a man in my, you know, partner's life and for my friends? What does that look like? You know, and that example that you get set of asking for help and the way you do it is beautifully and you, I, I've seen you do a crowdsource. <laughs> You know, I, I think on one of your LinkedIn's, it's like new dads out there. What well, you know? How do we do this stuff? You know, I think crowdsourcing is awesome, but there's this demonstrated um, vulnerability that doesn't look 
the soft and fluffy of how we think it might look and that we're scared of. Oh, my gosh. Even So I'm going to speak on behalf of it as a, a young male. It's like for me, I, I do it to change the narrative, to help change the narrative. So even the older men are like, oh, wow, if he can do it, then right. Mm-hmm. And even someone that's done a ton of men's work that's helped me craft that, it's still, there are still days where I go through it as well. But, yeah, even going off that, I remember putting out that call-out and there were a whole bunch of friends that I hadn't heard of in ages and even people I haven't spoken to before that would reach out and they would share with me, and obviously confidentially, their experience. And yeah. that was the whole point, to actually hear their experience. It wasn't asking for advice. And that just created the discussion, the dialogue, the conversation of, and as a result, like, I didn't feel alone, mm. right? And no, no one wants to feel alone at the end, and especially in that, in that moment. It's like, oh, my gosh, I feel ostracized from the rest of society. I feel alienated. I don't even know how, and I can't relate to anyone, and I feel like a black sheep and an outsider, when really there are other people out there yeah. that do feel like this as well too. Yeah. There's a great quote that I heard from Brene Brown on her podcast recently, and she said, in the absence of connection and belonging, we have suffering. <laughs> I just had to hit pause, pull over because I was driving, pull over to Gundawindi, so like out west four hours on these types of roads that like feel like a mousetrap roller coaster. And I kind of pulled over and it's just like, holy crap, no truer words have ever been said. Because without that belonging, without that connection, there is suffering. Yeah. And she says as well, like humans are neurobiologically wired for connection. Yeah. That's why a good story, a good book speaks to us because we start to put ourselves in their shoes too. So I agree to that. It's like the antithesis of all that. Mm. And connecting that into being help seeking and asking for help in a way that uh, you did, which I love, is asking for the stories, not for the advice. I love that. Can I please use that? Yeah, yeah. Because I do. I mean, that's that's how I read. Like I had someone say to me recently, you know, Julie, you read so much. How do you get find time to read so much? It's like, well, I'm reading for the story, not for the technical details. That's someone else's job. I'm reading for the story because I want to know the experience of that story. So it will help me to experience my own story better. Mm. And Yeah, that's a gateway to connection for sure. Yeah, and in you know, we're in any speaker work that we do, you know, the, these are the types of things that come through. And I want to get to that in a second because through these conversations you've been having, through all of the life changes you've been through in the past couple of years since I've known you, it's, and having known not all of your story, but some of your story of, you know, um, you know mental health challenges along the way. How have having conversations around mental health and, and, and connecting with people helped you with your own well-being? Yeah. I'd say it comes back down to not feeling alone, mm-hmm. like knowing that, and that as a result of that, I feel enough. I feel good enough because I'm not the only one going through this. That makes me so happy to hear right. both. <laughs> we, like we, we might be on the trenches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow, Face down in the dirt. Yeah, right? yeah. But at least I'm not doing this by myself. And that's the best thing that's ever happened from having these conversations. And I, I'm someone that loves deep talk too. I'm not the best person with small talk. I'll have it. I love the real deep conversation, the deep chat, because it a allows me to understand that person without having like if we grabbed a massive pie chart and grabbed a dot, that's all I really know about them. I don't know any of their their childhood. I could ask them, but I don't know to the fullest extent. But when I get to have those conversations about it, 
And obviously there's got to be a boundary around, I think Brene Brown has this acronym called Braving Bees. Yeah. It's about having that vulnerability to do it too, right? And it, yeah. a lot of it is related to trust and all these other elements. But when I'm able to have those conversations, I feel like I, it's always like, I feel like we've known each other for years. That's always the result of having these conversations. It's like, it's like man, it's, it's awesome. And they end up becoming really good friends. And then I don't have, I have less of a judgment of myself because how we judge others is how we judge ourselves. It's a projected mirror, right? So that's the best thing it's ever done for me by having these conversations. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. And I, I do. I honestly, I've always loved how you've been able to create narration around what's happening. You know, um, one of the things that we're talking about before we, we got started on the podcast was, you know, the, this kind of practical resilience that's come around as a result of it. What do you mean by that? I think I know what I'm, it means. I know what it means for me. But what do you mean by practical resilience? Yeah, I'll have to get like a diagram to visually show it. But think yeah. of like a Venn diagram. And the main circles, we've got adversity, we've got mindset, and we've got gratitude. And then we've got convergence, which is another word for overlap. And in between adversity and mindset, there's awareness. In between awareness, uh, between mindset and gratitude, there's action. And then between adversity and gratitude is perspective. And the crux in the middle is practical resilience. And the point of it is saying that anything that's a tough time that's happening that we're going through is happening to us or for us. When we can go through that, it ends up being for us. And if we reflect on a time where we've gone through something where we feel like our back is up against the wall and we feel like we're going to drop, it ends up serving us later on in life. It might not at the time. And I remember there was a point once upon like a, back in 2014 where I could sleep 18 hours a day because of that's how the only way I could deal with what I was going through was I would rather be unconscious than awake. Yeah. Right. And when I was able to, uh, I guess if I explain my own story in the, uh, in a very succinct manner of how I got through that, I end up turning into like this massive runner and how it happened was I, there was awareness I knew something was going on, but I was afraid to ask for help because A, it was never shown to me. B, men don't ask for help because it's a sign of weakness and I could do this myself. I've got this. And I remember leaving the house and I'd just been going on for like two to three weeks. And this is after a massive substance abuse background too. Right? I, I had nine months of a heavy bender as well where every day was either drinking and or drugs. And I remember walking, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's some spiritual, spiritual wishy-washy BS, but I end up getting to the mailbox at mum and dad's house. And I remember looking outside thinking, I haven't been out here for weeks. I go back to bed. And then the next day, I, I'm going to do that again for whatever reason. And it, something clicked and understanding that what is, how do I find my next mailbox? What's the next big thing? What's the next thing I can do that's very small that is just increased? And it comes down to that, well, how can I be 1% better, right? Like there's that, yeah. it's an actual mathematical formula. Like if you do 1.00 to the power of 365, it ends up being one. If I do 1.01 to the power of 365, it's 1.37. So after 365 days, if I do something 1% better, I end up being 37% better. I, the walk to the mailbox, years later, fast forward, I'm running the world's highest ultramarathon on Mount Everest. 
And then the year later, I am attempting to run across Scotland, which is 345 kilometers. Right? That's crazy, dude. Yeah, it's messed up. And I'm obviously <laughs> bloody awesome. fast tracking a lot of it, right? It, it consumed my life. And what happened was in that race across Scotland, I get to about 280 kilometers. So that's about six and a half marathons. And I'm breaking down physically, emotionally, mentally. There's a video of me somewhere. And afterwards, I end up pulling out. My, my race crew and I, we made the decision to pull out. A week later, I'm walking and I'm running again. It's incredible how like, resilient the body is. But two, three weeks later, I'm going through an identity crisis where I don't want to be a runner anymore. And I'm, that was actually the first time I actually reached out for help. I reached out to a friend and my mate Brandon, who I had known he'd been involved in this men's work community. And I said, I'm a mess. I need help. And I've, I'm lost as a person. I explained what was going on. And so much of my identity was being about a runner. And I got involved with this men's work and all this that when I look back, there's a huge amount of gratitude of even that time when I was even stuck in bed for 16, 18 hours a day for multiple weeks because of the stuff I was going through. There is a massive perspective shift in there that when I realize that if I go back through adversity, I'm okay because there's going to be a powerful lesson in that. So I've obviously fast forward a lot of moments. But yeah, it's it's incredible with that hindsight. Yeah, and I just want to highlight like there's, you know, um a lot of commonality in our story where there's hard times of whatever it is. Like there's this difficult awfulness that puts us into a state where prefer to be unconscious than conscious. You know, and that whole idea of sometimes that's our mind, body, spirit's way of clearing the slate. And the body and uh, like all of us, the, our holistic, you know, um, person has to go through that clearing of slate because it's muddy and it's messy and it's been hacked to pieces and it needs to heal. But then there comes this day where we can wake up and just do that. I, my husband introduced me to this idea of non-zero day. Do one thing. Then I haven't done nothing. And that one thing for me was getting up out of bed. The next day it was, I also put pants on. <laughs> this seriously, the smallest amount of things. That's the mailbox moment. That's the mailbox moment. It was a non-zero day because you, you put your shoes on generally to go to the mailbox. And, well, my shoes are already on, my pants are already on. Um, for me, my top was already on, you know, being safe for the neighbours. Um, but, you know, taking a step outside and taking a breath. Well, I'm already outside, so I may as well keep on doing something. It's that non-zero day. But then where that leads to is what we do with the lesson. <laughs> Sometimes then we overcompensate. <laughs> Running, for me, it was um, throwing myself back into what created the problem to begin with. And then we hit a point where it's just like, who the fuck am I? Yeah. And what the hell have I been doing? If anyone knows Monty Python, there's a sketch where They've got a tribe going through long grass and every now and then they jump up and down and go, where the fuck are we? So <laughs> you get to that point where it's just like, uh, how did I get here and what am I doing? But there's this opportunity of going, well, I now need to reshape it into what I need it to be. Yeah, rewiring neural pathways. That's the first thing yeah. I hear. How funny is it like driving the same path to work and going, how the hell did I get here? Mm, right, auto it's, mode. <laughs> yeah, it's autopilot. And I'll reflect on this too that, 
I talk about going into men's work because I was making the same behavioral pattern. What happened was if I talk about my drinking problem a long time ago, I did that to fit in. I did that to people please because I, I, there's a lot of reasons. Like I actually started drinking at the age of 13, which is really sad. And that was to, to fit in with a specific friend. And I'm not talking like a sip of dad's beer. I'm talking like hard liquor. That carried on that I didn't know who I was, that when I went traveling, I carried the identity of being the party guy. And that took a toll on my body. Like if I grabbed a plastic bottle and grabbed a nail and every time I destroyed my body because I'd look in the mirror and I would say, I don't want to be that person. And I would drown myself, right? I'd black out. And it saddens me that I didn't appreciate travel because it was the next pub, right? Mm. So if I grabbed this water bottle and just filled up, I'd love to actually show this as an experiment. And then as soon as I put water in, which is energy and life force, it's going to get drained. And then even the running, the saddest thing was I was also doing the same thing. I was also, at the start, it was finding a bit of purpose. But when I was able to realize that I was also doing it to be seen, to be validated. Valued. Valued, but also I wanted to be put on a pedestal. And it was a hard thing that it makes me grateful that I asked for help. And it was the best thing I could have done that time because I knew I couldn't do it by myself at that point we can't do life alone as humans no. to realize that oh i just broke a habit i changed the neural pathway mm-hmm. that's what i've done so that i can go a different way yeah that choice you know and i love that victor frankel quote of you know between uh, stimulus and responses a space and in that space we have a choice mm. yeah to be to love is a choice to any decision we life we want to make in life is a choice because we are the driver of our own vessels Sometimes we have things in our unconscious and our subconscious that wants to take over. The shadow pulls back, right? Yeah, and if we don't give ourselves a bit of space between things, we go into reaction, right? As opposed to response. As much opposed (laughs) to response. Our true response, our chosen response, where we find our freedom. You know, and I think the the lessons learned and, you know, the, the, the commonality that we share in it is, you know, what we're trying to do is create space. And when we're talking to someone, you know, having a mental health first aid conversation, What we're trying to do is create that space. Genuinely, I've come to understand that by helping someone create that space between whatever stimulus is going on for them so they can sit in response, that's that's the work. Because then to get them to, you know, speak to someone professionally about where they're at will then just make sense when they're in response mode. You know, will just make sense to speak to their colleagues and ask a friend for help. But we've got to create that space. You know, and that's, that's what I see that mental health first aid gives us the tools to do in algae is like what all we're doing is creating a space for someone, a safe space for someone, a steady space, being ballast, like kind of helping them not tip over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that we think alike. <laughs> but see, like we have really common stories. We do. Like, you know, the, the details are completely different. But as you know me, I'm not one for details. The details of what you've been through and the details of what you went through during those times isn't going to change how I see you. I see you because you've had a really tough experience that's really deeply impacted you. And to be able to hold you steady and say, what do you need, man? Like, what does it look like for you to be well? You know, and how long you've been feeling this way and, you know, like what does good look like and what's the gap? 
I don't need to know the details. Yeah, and do you, do you need support and all these questions that come about? Because I've learned that when I was a heavy people pleaser, if someone was in distress, I'm going to come over and rescue them, right? There's this thing called the drama triangle. I don't know if you've heard about this. No, I call them fixers, but tell me this drama triangle, that sounds even more fun. <laughs> right, so it's an actual thing, and I can't remember who started this concept. I'm pretty sure it's back in the 80s, right? There's each point, there's a victim, there's a perpetrator, and then there's a rescuer, right? Yes. And someone is often dominant in those, but when we're going through our own emotional turmoil, we hit all three, right? Victim is why me, poor me, that we start to have a lot of judgment on ourselves that we start to perpetrate often our mind, right? And I remember seeing a therapist about this, that I have a different level of perfectionism than what people might not think. If things aren't going in my world, I will tyrannize them without even me knowing. And it was hard. Like I was doing that to say my parents and Mm. people that were close friends of mine. And it was good to have that awareness, right? And what I was doing in perpetration was I would try and rescue people so I can get their love because I wasn't able to give it to myself because I was getting myself in the victim. So the opposite, the antithesis of that is the empowerment triangle. So the opposite of victim would be victor, like someone who is able to say, this is happening for me, not to me. And I think the opposite of the perpetrator is the coach. And I think the rescuer, someone that, oh, I can't remember the third one, but I am happy to send it to you. Yeah, yeah, like, let's get Interesting. it on here. What I've found in this mental health first aid and anything else that's very similar, which not too much is, we're there to be like a bit of a beacon to, they end up flicking their switch off themselves or flicking it on whatever way you want to look at it. But we're there to be that support, maybe the, like you said, that support system. And then they ended up walking it out themselves. But isn't that ideal? Because, you know, so many of the conversations that I have with people is like their ownership of what's happening. Mm. And I'm literally saying, get out of the way. It's got nothing to do with you. It doesn't. It's got nothing to do with you. You can't take ownership of someone else's feelings. You can't, you know, we're in um, the MHFA work in their manual. They have an image of a girl on a boat um, who's rowing along. She looks sad, but she also looks determined. Like if you jump in a boat with someone and take their oars off them, like the disempowerment that happens, like you may as well just smack them over the back of the head with those oars. Like, you know, we can't be doing that. We're making it about ourselves. Don't. Don't be the fixer. You know, um, in The Incredibles, um, the, the little lady that makes the, the, all the uniforms and things like that for the superheroes, I always forget her name. She says, uh, superheroes don't wear capes because the capes get stuck into the wind turbines when they're flying next to aeroplanes. So I just, I have this image in my head as like, Julie, you don't need to be a hero. You know, this, this isn't about you. Um, there's nothing for, for me to fix here. Their outcomes are not my outcomes. And the ease of being able to have a conversation then, so much easier. Hi, it's Julie here. I know I'm interrupting the conversation, but I just want to say, pay attention to some of the points that we talk about, about mental health first aid and the training, because we unpack algae a little bit, which is the acronym that we use um, in mental health first aid. It is a guiding light. It's a way of kind of knowing, you know, how we can turn up and what we need to be able to be okay in a conversation. So keep listening out for those points. Thank you for watching. Let's get back to the episode. With like 
superhero movies or how Disney is. Mm. Because, like, how influential it's been. Like, for example, a lot of Disney movies, it's and happily ever after. And then a lot of relationships might think that too because that's the princess story, right? It's even, like, the superhero too. Oh, right? yeah. Like, a lot of superheroes, we can relate to a specific range because maybe we relate to their story in particular. But I think also people might see that and they might go, man, I, I, I want that as well. That could also be an influence as well. But God, every superhero story, they're lonely. They're disconnected. They don't have their family. They're miserable and have nothing other than saving other people. Like that's, that's not being human. That's why most superheroes actually aren't humans. There we go. There we go. <laughs> There's a profound statement. Because <laughs> to be human is none of those things. To be human is to be fallible and to make mistakes and to learn and grow. And if we're not learning and growing, then, you know, it's, there's no point to it. Yeah. And a lot of that comes down to this. I, I always relate this back to the story we're telling ourselves. Mm. Right. And there has been times where if things aren't going my way, I will tell myself that I'm a failure or I'm not enough or I'm not deserving of this or whatever the, whatever the thing is. Right. And it, it ends up being this behavior, right? This, they call it the shadow in men's work. It's this thing behind that allows us to deny and repress our actual behavior. So we're out of integrity. Like I say, yeah. I'm going to do this, and then I don't show up because I'm telling myself I'm a failure, which is reinforcing that belief, right? Mm. And I think it's, under, it's, it's actually having that conversation with ourselves too. Oh, yeah to see like when something isn't going right because when everything's going well it's fine right but when things aren't going right how do we respond to it am i do i always go into that victim point of going no i don't deserve this because of my past life and whatever or whatever happened in my past so i think that's important to also have that conversation with ourselves because the story right story is everything and it's also a story that we tell ourselves oh yeah oh yeah absolutely I want to bring you a background to um, what you're doing with uh, practical resilience. Because when we were talking before, you were saying that, you know, you had this opportunity of actually being talking about this in front of a group and being able to do it as, you know, as a keynote. And I just love this idea of being able to set a frame for what this looks like. Because I'm brought in to do resilience training or, you know, I might get a phone call and say, hey, Julie, you know, can you do some training so our people need to be more resilient? And it literally, like, pisses me off because it's like, hang on a second, let's not look at the individual. Like, you know, let's look at their environment that they're in. Let's look at the things impacting them because if they're turning up to work, they're, they're okay. They just might need a better environment. So when you talk about practical resilience in the way that you did, it's like, oh, I like that. Like, because that talks collectively about resilience and it's situational in the person mm. too right mm. like yeah, it's it we, is it's coming back to whatever tough times we've gone through or the adversity that there it serves a purpose so that we've bounced back from that and i'm sure there's a million different definitions of resilience i know yes. you've had that conversation <laughs> with Catherine about yeah. this and it can be a bit of a buzzword but it's, for me, the whole point of that was knowing that every time we're going through a tough time, it serves us. It might not feel like it at the time, but once going through that, it, that perspective piece is so important because what I find with perspective, 
it not only gives me empathy and compassion for myself, it's for anyone else that's going through something other, something similar or even having a tough time of their own. It's a bit hard if I can't relate exactly. But that's why I find like COVID's a funny one because it's the one time where the entire population is going through it together. So there is hopefully a little bit more compassion of understanding of that. And as a result, there's definitely been a lot of positives that come from it. Finally, we all have something in common. Yeah, it might only be one thing, but, you know, I, I think it's very binding. Yeah. So, and I guess, you know, that perspective, you know, when, you, when you're talking to a lot of people about this and that kind of perspective shift about how you own your own resilience, you know, the, the, the goodness that can come from that is really amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It, there's almost like an ownership of it as well. And it's, there's a famous uh, Navy SEAL. He's called uh, Jocko Willink. And he has this book called Extreme Ownership. And that's how I like to look at it as well. It's like, ends up being everything that we do, we take ownership of it. And that it ends up becoming a higher level, high standard of integrity that, of what we do. Like, word is bond, right? And that's how I see as a really good result. When I can have that awareness around all of that, it allows me to live the man that I want to be. But also then having the conversations you want to have. Mm. Which means there's less conflict, there's greater clarity, there's still going to be Barneys, like there's still going to be stuff that falls apart. But it's easier to then just go, okay, can we reset? Because that really sucked. You know, what are some of the things that we learned from it? What can we do about it? And the courage to do it early on, to nip things in the bud, as opposed to waiting to the oh shit, like we need to talk about this now or else we're going to tarnish everything. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever dealt with anything like that. But when you, when like, <laughs> my le- age, yes. <laughs> right. Like learning to deal with it early on, it's like, yeah. ends up being a skill. Well, and I think the, the practice of that, you know, I think it started for me when I was doing the mental health first aid training of being able to go, well, okay, what does a conversation like this actually look like? What's involved? How do I practice that? And how do I get better at that? And how do I get ahead of it and become preventative? And I think, you know, what you're talking about is these conversations practiced and practice often allow us to be preventative in everything around us. Some things are still going to fall apart. Some things we're going to choose not to poke at and prod at because we just don't want to have to. But the things that count will do it. And it's a lot easier to with a framework that serves us. Yeah. I try to think of like the hard conversations I've had recently. And I think I remember seeing that interview did with Roto mm. and it's never the conversation that's hard. It's the courage leading up to it. That's the point that's hard. However, like how I see myself deal with that, it's just like, it's just like ripping the bandaid off to get to that point. And once you have the conversation, it all works itself out. Right. Yeah. I, his quote was um, a work imagined versus work real. What if we, I'm going to have to ask you permission on this, Roto, to do this. What if it was conversation imagined versus conversation real? Because there are two completely different things. What we perceive to what is actually going to happen, right? And that's where, like, a lot of fear comes in. Yeah. So something that we're projecting yeah. that's going to happen, which oftentimes doesn't usually happen. Most often it doesn't. Okay, so, Toph, before I let you go. There's three questions I like to ask all of my guests, and I look forward to your answers on this one. The first one is fill in the blank. A conversation can. 
conversation can be a gateway to connection. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that. Yeah, it's a gateway. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, what has been the greatest lesson, good or bad, that you've learned about having conversations? The greatest lesson about having conversations would be about what I said before. It's really just discussion. That. Let me start. Let me rephrase that. Having a harder conversation or a tougher conversation, which may seem like conflict, is really just the same. It's just having a conversation, and. It's, it really just takes practice. The first one is going to be the rustiest. It's going to be, it's, oh my gosh, it might take you out. Like, but <laughs> after some time, it, it really can show that you can really shop as the bigger person. And that's something that I'm trying to do for myself and model that for my child and my children as well. Yeah. And, and there's a real, the, the lesson also comes in is that, you know, when we do mess it up, when we do have that first time that we're trying, what reaction are we getting back from someone, like when we're in trying mode? I think if they really see you in the moment, I think they it's almost like they see it with intention, right? Their person is really doing this to amend whatever's happening or at least they're showing up. I think that's the look. They're like, at least they're showing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that went bad, but you're here. What do you want to do about it? And I think that's really important for people to hear is that, yeah, we're going to get it messy. There is practice that has to be done. It's not smooth to start with. It does get smoother. But in that interim time where we're apprenticing to do better, there's actually a lot of kindness and forgiveness that comes along with it because we're being real. We're being purposeful. We're being human. um, And we're showing that we actually care. So I just want to kind of make like, that point on top of your lesson. Thank you. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> what is something you would like others to know about having difficult conversations? I know it kind of sits in the same area, but there's something else that, you know, um, that you'd like others to know about the difficult conversations. That it really does serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. Like it might not feel like it at the time, but when we can come to terms with it and it ends up happening, it really does serve a purpose and it that could come in the most like philosophical way. It could be like I've seen where people have these hard conversations, even for myself, and they end up reconnecting with old friendships, right? It doesn't even have to be a conflicting conversation too. It could be something that helps reduce a lot of tension in the air of what's going on. It could also be to bring light to something that you wanted to voice. And for me, that purpose is probably understanding. Mm. Yeah, to bring something out of the shadow. Yeah. And it's like, this stuff needs light. Mm. No, I love it. I really appreciate those answers. It's, um, it's a good summation of everything that we've spoken about today. And uh, thank you. And thank you for doing the MHFA training with me. It was great to have you and uh, your partner in there with me. It was, I loved it. Uh, so... Thank you. And I really encourage other people to do the mental health first aid training. You know, it really is a great structured way of starting this journey um, of creating the language around being a supportive, compassionate human Um, can help take us out of fix it mode, which is brilliant. And uh, there should be more people out there who can be better help givers, but it also gives us the toolkit from what I hear of being help seeker 
as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Julie. Appreciate you for having me on. Mm. And thank you for everything you do, obviously from a mental health standpoint, but with the podcast too. Yeah, no, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I always love catching up with Toph, but we don't generally go into some of the deeper things because we're always talking about the podcast total or or other things that are coming up and down around and like being a new dad. But today I got to hear more of his journey and his story and so much more makes sense for me. Um, and the the man that I see today, you know, Toph is genuinely kind and authentic and caring. And you know that when you're in his presence that you too can be okay. And it's only through this understanding that this journey has a reason, has a purpose. And being able to repurpose that in your mind. And he was speaking to that through, you know, the conversation that we had. Um, and that that's what forms his practical resilience. You know, he has a framework. You know, I, I'm not sure if you've listened to the podcast where I unpack my story. But my journey has been made simpler and easier um, and purposeful because I've been able to put it into a framework. It's really important to find something that fits your story and fits the telling of your story to make sense of it, but also to optimize it, to make it something that you can own instead of it owning you. The language we use around this is really powerful. Mental health first aid for me started a huge change in how I could turn up. Personally, it helped me in being able to frame how I could ask for help, just like TOEF. We've got a lot of commonalities. But it also enabled me to step in for people and realize that they just needed to be seen, they just needed to be heard. It's a beautiful process to go through. It's two hard days of training like it is. There's a lot of content, but you finally come to understand what it's all about. What is mental illness really? And how does it differ from mental health um, problems? And so I really, really deeply encourage, you know, for any of you that haven't done the training to have a look for it. Go to the Mental Health First Aid Australia website, which is mhfa.com.au. Um, there's a lot of information in there, lots of guidelines, lots of resources um, and, and pragmatic stuff of things that you can do, not just the knowledge, but what to do about it. And also, like, just to remember that conversation can save a life. And it saved Toph's life. It saved my life. It saves many people's lives. So I really encourage you to do something today and ask that one more question. So thank you. And I just want to thank um, for you being with us today for this podcast. Uh, there's a lot that goes into these and we've been doing it um, for a number of months now. And we, we love the process. Um, the after part's the hard part, you know, trying to get it into everyone's ears and uh, to get in front of people. Uh, but we're working on that better. But uh, I just want to say that this podcast is proudly brought to you by myself, Julie Gillespie, my head of operations, Emma Schneider, and has been produced by Toph Evans, who you got to meet today. And uh, you can find the podcast show notes and guest information on the website, which is direct, And you can watch us on YouTube where you can subscribe for the updates. And follow our articles on LinkedIn. So on LinkedIn, you can um, connect in with myself, Julie Gillespie. You'll find me in there. And um, the uh, conversations with uh, Julie 
Uh, we also have a LinkedIn page for us. So any, if you're looking for the updates, if you're looking for more information about it all and just want to kind of see the types of um, frameworks that uh, we talk about, uh, that's where you can go in and uh, see them all. So thank you once again. I really appreciate it. And uh, please share this with someone who you want to start a conversation with. Thank you.